Turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 9. We are in a subsection in this book. We entered it last Sunday, last Lord's Day. It is a section that begins in the ninth chapter, verse 14, and carries on to the end of chapter 10. I think that's verse 52, verse 53. So a section that that encompasses... Uh, the middle, more or less, of this book, in which the Lord Jesus states explicitly that he must go to Jerusalem, where he must suffer, he must be killed, and he must rise again. Surrounding those two explicit declarations concerning his approaching death and resurrection, he imparts eight lessons to his disciples. So the section, again, from chapter 9, verse 14, to chapter 10, I'm pretty sure it's verse 52, Uh, The main thrust of the section, or rather the main focus of the section, is upon the disciples, the twelve, and Christ's instruction of the twelve, and in particular, eight lessons. Last Sunday, we looked at the first, a lesson on faith, all things are possible. Today, we're going to look at the second, a lesson on humility. And so follow along as I begin reading in Mark chapter 9, verse 30, and I'm going to go as far as verse 41. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink, because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. A lesson on humility. The place to begin is with a question. Why do the disciples need this lesson? Why do the twelve, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and the rest, why do they need a lesson on humility? I don't think we need to go far to discover the answer to that. Uh, These men, if they struggle with anything, they struggle with pride. And because of their struggle with pride, they are having an extremely difficult time computing, understanding Christ's description of the nature of true discipleship. You see, in the previous chapter, Christ reveals for the first time that he is here to suffer. He is here to go to Jerusalem where he will die, he will be killed. He has revealed that, and then he has revealed subsequently the true nature of discipleship. That to follow me, it means three things. Firstly, it means you must deny yourself, become nothing in your own eyes. 
Secondly, you must take up your cross and follow me. In other words, you must be willing to sacrifice anything, lose everything for me, that is for the gospel. And you must, thirdly, follow me, that is obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The Lord Jesus has described the pathway of humility. He has described the pathway of poverty of spirit. When we become conscious of our sin, painfully aware of our sinfulness before a holy God, we deny ourselves. We do not come with one iota of self-righteousness. When we realize our sinfulness before a holy God and that we hang by the most precarious of threads over his righteous indignation, we're ready to pick up our cross. We'll sacrifice anything. We'll lose anything. We'll give up anything for the sake of the gospel. And understanding who Jesus is and understanding what Jesus has done at Calvary's cross, we are prepared to follow him. This is the pathway to humility. The disciples don't understand it. The disciples don't get it. The disciples, in their defense, we won't defend them too much, but in their defense slightly, they can't compute it. Why? Because of the context in which they live. They live in a culture that glorifies pride. The Greco, Roman culture place tremendous emphasis on power, tremendous emphasis on beauty, tremendous emphasis on status, tremendous emphasis on wealth. That is the culture in which they live. They live in a culture which glorifies and magnifies greatness. Therefore, Christ's depiction and description of the true nature of discipleship, it it, it doesn't jive with their understanding of what it means to be great. Secondly, looking again at their context, Not only are they part of a culture which glorifies and magnifies pride, they are part of an entire religious system that has spiritualized pride. Who are their heroes in the context of their religion? Pharisees. If the Pharisees are anything, they are what? They are proud. They are proud of their self-righteousness. The entire Jewish religion, religion in this day and age at this time is a religion predicated on pride. It is a religion constructed upon what? Self-righteousness. It is a religion that magnifies what? The pursuit of greatness in the eyes of man. That's the twelve's context. They're part of a culture that glorifies pride. They are part of a religion that normalizes pride. Into the midst of that context, the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. And here, if you want to follow me, here is what you must do. You must deny yourself, you must pick up your cross, and you must follow me. The disciples don't get it. Hence the need for a lesson on humility. Now what I want to do before we get to the actual content of the lesson, the nitty-gritty of these verses, I want to give you a pop quiz. Thirteen questions. You don't need to write down your answers. You don't need to share your answers with anyone. As a matter of fact, I counsel you not to share your answers with anyone. But this is a pop quiz that I'm asking you to sit, and I'm asking me to sit, to take. Uh, This is not a pop quiz that concerns your spouse. You're not doing this pop quiz for your better half. This is not a pop quiz that concerns your children. It's not a pop quiz that concerns anybody else sitting in your row. It's not a pop quiz concerning anyone else in your life. This is a pop quiz that we all must take for ourselves, consisting of 13 questions. Here's question number one. Do we disregard God's commands? Do we disregard God's commands? Let me put it another way. Are we, as we read the Bible, are we willing to submit to something we don't like? 
So I'm reading, I don't know, in 1 Corinthians, Romans, somewhere, I'm reading. And I, and I come face to face with a commandment. Do I resent it? Uh, do I resent being told what to do? Question number two. Do we murmur against God's providence? Do we murmur against God's providence? So do I think to myself, you know, I really do deserve better than this. I really think, I really think that I am entitled to better than this. Question number three. Do we think we are better than others? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Oh, I'm so thankful I'm not like you. I'm so thankful I'm not like him. I am so thankful I'm not like her. In other words, do we really believe God is impressed with us? Number four. Do we resent correction? And so when someone confronts us with Scripture, and we are in the wrong, how do we react? Normally in one of three ways. Firstly, we pout. I'm taking my ball and I'm going home. At other occasions, we go on the defensive by justifying ourselves. On other occasions, we counterattack by deflecting attention away from the issue. Do we resent correction? Number five, do we trust in earthly comforts? In other words, where, where does my faith really lie? Uh, in what do I hope? The answer to that question is what affects me most emotionally. You want to know what you really believe in? If I want to know what I really believe in, the answer to that question is what affects me most emotionally. Therein lies the object of my faith. Therein lies the object of my hope. And when we trust in earthly comforts, we are, in effect, denying the all-sufficiency of God. Number six, do you want me to keep going? There are a bunch more. Uh, by the way, I, I already know what score you all get, and it's exactly the same score I get. There aren't going to be any surprises here, and we are not going to grade on a curve. Number six, do we explode when facing opposition? How do I react when people oppose me? Nothing wrong with defending the truth but it's my tendency to lash out. Number seven, do we manifest harshness when we admonish others, correct others, challenge others? Are we unsympathetic toward others' failures and frailties? Are we like a bull in a china shop? Or is it a rhino in a china shop? I can't remember. It's a big animal in a china shop. And the point is this, the animal can't move without what? Destroying everything in its way. Is that what I'm like every time I open my mouth? Is that what I'm like when it comes to my relationships with others? I can't move without leaving a pathway of destruction behind me. Number eight, do we delight in our gifts and abilities, our beauty, our ability, our intelligence, and on and on? Do we desire to be noticed, admired, appreciated, and acclaimed by others? Number nine, do we take God's mercies for granted? Do we forget what he has done for us? Do we forget how much he has forgiven us? In other words, let me put it another way. Are we downright presumptuous? Question number 10. Do we worry excessively? Do we worry excessively? Because you see, if we do worry excessively, do you know what that means? It means we long to act independently of God. Which means we want to be in control. Which means 
we think we know what is best. Number 11, do we notice blemishes more than blessings? Do we focus on what's wrong rather than celebrating what's right? Do we build up or do we tear down? Number 12, do we quietly, secretly, obviously we would never admit it publicly, but do we quietly, secretly resent the successes and achievements of others? And do we resent the achievement and successes of others? And number 13, last question. Do we think about ourselves? Let me explain what I mean by that with a couple of questions. Are we absorbed with our own plans and problems? Do we imagine all sorts of scenarios in which we are the center of attention? I'm guessing most of us got zero on that. We failed it miserably. Uh, The questions are designed to, to reveal what? We have a problem, just like the disciples. The problem is what? Pride. The problem is what? We long to be greatest. Now, if you aren't depressed enough, listen to the next six truths that we need to understand and come to grips with concerning pride. And let, I'll, I'll be quick here, or try to be quick as I go through these. Six truths concerning the nature of pride, what it, what it is, the monster that it is. What, what are we talking about? First truth is this concerning pride. It is the root of all sin. Did you know that? Pride is the root. Self-love is the root of all sin. Pride is ultimately what caused Lucifer to fall. Pride is ultimately what caused Adam and Eve to fall. Uh, Pride is there at at the base, at the root of the foundation of every manifestation of sin. Every sin, whatever it is, we can draw it back to its first cause. Pride, self-love. Second truth is this. Pride is innate. Meaning what? We don't learn it. Nor do we acquire it. We are born with it. It infiltrates our entire being. It affects everything we do, everything we say, everything we feel, and everything we think. Conventional wisdom tells us Conventional wisdom tells us, not really wisdom, but you know what I mean by conventional wisdom, tells us that um, what people really need today more than anything is self-esteem. That's actually false. There isn't anyone on the face of this earth who lacks self-esteem. No one. And yet we have have this this mindset, this philosophy, this worldview, built on this idea, constructed on this idea, that what people really need is self-esteem, and all their problems can be traced back to a lack of self-esteem. And so what we need to do is build up people's self-esteem. Do you know what that's like? That's like, let's suppose there's a brush fire somewhere here in Somerville County, and the volunteers of the fire department show up at this brush fire, and they say, hey, look, to put this thing out, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pour gasoline on it. That's what our world is doing with this idea. People lack self-esteem. And so what we must do is actually what? Build up their self-esteem. All we're doing is adding fuel to the fire. Our problem is not a lack of self-esteem. Our problem is we are completely absorbed with ourselves. We are focused on self from the moment we awake to the moment we go to bed. We are compelled and we are influenced and we are controlled 
by self-love. Third truth is this. Pride is the object of God's hatred. Proverbs 16.5 Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Uh, Another way of saying that is this. uh, God hates the proud. The proud are the object of God's hatred. We hate abortion. Uh, We hate child abuse. We hate so many things. What does God hate? He hates the proud. One author said, God hates other sinners, but against the proud, he professes open defiance and hostility. I'm just going to pause there just to make sure I'm not going crazy. Is anyone else hearing a constant hum or is it just in my head? You're hearing a boom? It's just in my head. Teresa just saying, no, you hear it too. There it goes. That's it. Thanks at the back there. I thought I was going crazy there for a moment. Pride. I got enough problems. I don't need this booming in my head constantly. Number four, pride is the reason that people reject the gospel. No one rejects the gospel for intellectual reasons. They'll tell you that it's intellectual reasons, but it's not. It's always a heart issue. Pride is the reason that people reject the gospel. One author says, men are more willing to part with their sins than with their righteousness. What does he mean? He means this. No one has a problem admitting that they sin. No one has an issue confessing that they've done things that they wish they could go back and change. Here's man's problem. Man's problem is this, an unwillingness to admit that he's never done anything right. Let me repeat the quote. Men are more willing to part with their sins than with their righteousness. That lies at the heart of man's problem and central issue, pride. And that is the reason people reject the gospel. The fifth truth, pride is deceptive. It is extremely difficult to detect. We are capable of boasting just about anything. As a matter of fact, we're even proud of our humility. Sixth truth is this. Pride is the cause of most of what ails us. That's true, folks, it is. Pride is the cause of most of what ails us. I'm discouraged. Why? Because I think I deserve better. I'm bitter. Why? Because I think I've been unfairly treated. I'm discontent. Why? Because I really wish people would notice me and value me as I think I should be noticed and valued. I have relational problems in my marriage with my children, with other Christians, with my neighbors, my co-workers. More often than not, at the root of all of this lies pride. Let me repeat those six because I went through them quickly. And they are extremely important if we're really going to appreciate this lesson on humility. Number one, pride is the root of all sin. Number two, pride is innate. We don't learn it. We're born with it. Number three, pride is the object of God's hatred. Number four, pride is the reason that people reject the gospel. Number five, pride is deceptive. And number six, pride is the cause, more often than not, of whatever ails us. And so we have the problem, we have the issue, just like the disciples. They are flesh and bones just like us, and we're just like them. We live in a culture just like them. Greco-Roman culture, it magnified and glorified 
Pride, material pride. So do does our culture. Our culture values what? Physical beauty. It values what? Physical power. It values what? Physical wealth, physical influence. These are the means, the avenues by which we pursue what? Greatness. These are the things by which we define ourselves. These are the things for which we want to be known. It is this elevation of pride. So too, no different from the Jews, I dare say, the, Jewish, the Jews, our own religion today. The prevalent mindset within Christianity can only be described as what? The pursuit of self-righteousness. Christianity today is very, very little different in actual fact from Judaism of Christ's day. We've changed the words, we've changed the vocabulary. And yet the religion pursued by so many in our day is nothing more than another form of what? Self-righteousness, at the root of which lies what? Spiritual pride. We need to hear this as much as the disciples needed to hear it. A lesson on humility, what it really means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I dare say we have difficulty computing that. And we have difficulty computing that, let me repeat it, because we are part of a culture that magnifies pride. And let me say it, we are part of a religion that has normalized pride. And so what we've got on our hands is, our, is, is this inflated balloon called pride. And what we need to do is take out a sharp pin and pop it. And that's what the Lord Jesus does in this text. He gives them a lesson on humility. And we can divide, we come now to the verses, we can divide this text, these verses, into two. And basically, let me give you the outline. In verses 33 through 37, he deals with one manifestation of pride. It is the sin of superiority. Not that these, these categories of superior and inferior are sinful in and of themselves. What is sinful is this desire on the part of the disciples to be what? To be superior. To be the greatest. And so in those verses, 33 through 37, the Lord Jesus addresses the sin of superiority. There's a quandary, and then there's clarity. That's what we're going to see. And then the second section, the second half of the text, verses 38 through 41, he addresses the sin of exclusivity. Exclusivity. And again, we will see, as in the first case, There is a quandary, a problem, a dilemma. And there is clarity. The Lord Jesus speaks truth into that situation. So back up with me to the first, the sin of superiority. Follow along again as I begin reading in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And so they've been traveling through this region known as Galilee. They have arrived at their point of destination. They have entered the house. Perhaps they're sharing a meal together. And the Lord Jesus now turns to the twelve, the twelve disciples, and asks them a pretty direct question. What were you discussing on the way? It's a conversation killer. Look at verse 34. But they kept silent. All of a sudden, Peter's fiddling with his sandal. John's pulling on a loose thread in his cloak. Andrew and someone else are engaged in a conversation. Some are staring at the ceiling. Some are pretending they didn't hear. It is a conversation stopper. They keep silent. Why? 
For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The greatest. Now, we know it's at the root, pride. A culture that magnifies it, a religion that normalizes it, and, and, and they're following suit, and they're consumed with pride, and they're consumed with their concept of what it means to be great. But what, what precisely precipitates it now? Uh, what makes them engage in this conversation now? Let me suggest a few possibilities. The first is this. Prior to this event, not long before this event, uh, the Lord Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they've answered. They've responded. Well, some think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some think you're the prophet Elijah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. Then he asks them a follow-up question. Who do you say that I am? Peter steps to the forefront and makes that wonderful declaration, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember Christ's response to Peter at that time? You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Do you think Peter maybe brought that up in conversation a little later? Did, I just want to make sure everybody got that. We could write it out. Let's all, everybody say it with me. I am Peter, and upon this rock the Lord Jesus will build my church. That's a possibility. Another possibility is this. Uh, Lord Jesus has just been transfigured. Tremendous, wonderful. This, this, this display of his eternal splendor. Who's present? Peter, James, and John. Who isn't present? The other nine. Wouldn't you be asking why? Does that mean we're more special? Uh, Peter, James, and John. We've been granted a privilege uh, that the other uh, disciples, well, they were excluded from it. Or another possibility might be Christ's declaration a little before this, that he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. That is John the Baptist. That means we, the twelve, are greater than John the Baptist. But among us, who's the greatest? They are striving for what? superiority, and it is a manifestation of the pride. That is the quandary, verse 38. And now the Lord Jesus speaks into the confusion, into the midst of the darkness, and there is clarity, beginning in verse 35. And he sat down and he called the twelve, you know, come in close. I don't want you to miss this. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, meaning you, he's referring to them, that's what you want. You want to be first, you want to be the greatest, Here's what you must understand. He must be last of all and servant of all. It's a further elaboration of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus, to deny self and to take up our cross. Here's what you must become. You must become self-forgetful. And your longing to be first, your longing to be great, must be usurped, supplanted with what? A desire to be last of all and a willingness to be servant of all. Now, they're slow learners just like we're slow learners. Maybe they're visual learners. And so what does the Lord Jesus do in verse 36, 37? He gives them a very wonderful illustration. He took a child. Come here. Put him in the midst of them. And taking him, the child, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. What's he saying? Well, he's explaining what it means to be last of all and servant of all. 
by drawing their attention to this child whom he is embracing and saying, look, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I believe what the Lord Jesus is saying is simply this. Look, you can do whatever you want for this child. And you can serve uh, this child. He won't congratulate you. He won't thank you. He won't applaud you. He won't even acknowledge you. That is how you are to serve. That is what it means to become last. You do what you do as my disciples, and you do it for me. You do not do it to gain the acclaim of others or to exercise superiority over one another. You do not do it to be applauded. You do not do it to receive any kind of reward. You do not do it in order to be noticed and acclaimed. You do it unto others as if they were children, those who will never repay you, those who most likely won't even thank you, and many of whom won't even acknowledge you. That's what it means to be the servant of all. But there's a second problem with their pride. The sin of exclusivity. And we enter now into verse 38 and follow along as I read these verses again. 38 through 41. John said to him, I'm not sure how much time passes, but I think Mark has placed this here intentionally because the Lord Jesus is dealing with the same issue. Pride is a lesson on humility. John said to him, here's the quandary. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Why? Because he was not following us. He was not following us. So there's nothing wrong with this individual. Perhaps he's one of the 70 that are sent out later. Uh, He is a follower of the Lord Jesus. He is a disciple of the Lord Jesus in the general term, a follower. He is not one of the official 12 disciples, the apostles. He has not been appointed as, as, as Christ's representatives right there during his ministry who are sent out to extend the kingdom and to proclaim the gospel and to cast out demons. Uh, he isn't one of us. We've noticed him on several occasions. There he is, and he's using your name, and he's casting out demons. He's, he's not teaching anything heretical. He's not doing anything wrong. As a matter of fact, from, from what we can understand, he seems to be quite orthodox. But here's the point. He won't listen to us. Here's the point. He doesn't get in line. What are the disciples doing? The disciples, simply put, are attempting to establish their control and hedge their power. We're the twelve. And anybody who's going to do anything in Christ's name needs to get in line. This is the quandary. Now Jesus speaks with clarity into their confusion, beginning in verse 39. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. There's nothing wrong with this man. He is ultimately one of, our, one of us. Uh, he is a follower. Uh, it's between him and me. It's nothing to do with you. For the one, verse 40, who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink. So here the Lord Jesus is describing the most menial 
the most trivial of tasks. Look what he does with it. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Jesus assures them that he rewards the most menial task done in his name. Therefore, what should be their response and attitude? They should support everyone who is engaged in Christ's work. And so we have these disciples. They're wrestling with the true nature of discipleship. Deny me, take up your cross, and follow me. The reason they're wrestling with this is because of their own innate pride. And in this context, their pride now shows itself. It bursts forth in this sin of superiority, in this sin of exclusivity. The Lord Jesus addresses their sin. And ultimately, in the context, what he does is he points them to the true nature of humility. How? By pointing them to his own example. Look back with me, and this is why I began reading from verse 30. Look at what Mark says there. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And we're afraid to ask him. You see, there is the answer to their pride. There is the solution to their pride. It is the Lord Jesus. It is his death. It is his burial. It is his resurrection. It is his selfless sacrifice. It is the answer to their pride, and it is the answer to our pride in three ways. The first is this. Jesus' death liberates us. It liberates us. Frees us from what? Frees us from the penalty of our sin. Frees us from the consequences of our sin, pride being our chief sin. That at Calvary's cross, we see the Lord Jesus becoming sin for us. At Calvary's cross, we see the Lord Jesus become the chief of sinners. We see our sin, our pride imputed to him. And it is by virtue of his death that he liberates us, saves us, redeems us from our sin. Secondly, Jesus' death not only liberates us from our pride, but Jesus' death also conquers our pride. That when we become one with the Lord Jesus by faith, we become one with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. That means we have died to sin, and now he calls us to what? To consider ourselves dead to sin. And it is from the Lord Jesus and his death at Calvary's cross that we derive the strength necessary to do what? Overthrow sin's dominion in our lives and break the chains of pride. Thirdly, not only does Jesus' death liberate us or save us from our pride, not only does it conquer our pride, But Jesus' death motivates us to deal with our pride. Because as the Lord Jesus goes to Jerusalem, and as he submits himself willingly to that suffering, and as he dies upon Calvary's cross, what do we behold? We behold his humility. We see what it means to deny self. 
We see what it means to take up our cross. We see what it means to follow him. That is Christ's corrective as he imparts this lesson to the disciples. That said, let me leave you with three three concluding, concluding remarks. The first is this. I'll be brief. Our time is going. The nature of humility, let's be clear, in the context of this lesson on humility, as the Lord Jesus confronts the disciples' pride, as he confronts our pride, we need to be very clear on the nature of humility. When we speak of humility and what it means to be humble in God's sight, we are not referring, we are not referring to a humble condition. There are plenty of people who are humbled in terms of their condition. There are plenty of people who struggle with poverty. There are plenty of people who struggle with other ailments. There are people who struggle with afflictions. And in those afflictions, in those struggles, they experience what? Humble circumstances, a humble condition. That's not what we're referring to. When we speak of humility, we are speaking of an inner reality. We are speaking of the transformation of the heart. We are speaking of the fruit of a new birth. We are speaking of something that flows from Calvary's cross that arises by virtue of our union with the Lord Jesus. Martin Lloyd-Jones describes it as follows. Humility is a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance, a complete absence of self-reliance. Do you want a very simple definition of humility? I think I mentioned it earlier. Let me repeat it now to make sure we all got it. A very simple definition of humility, what it means to be humble, is simply this. It is to be self-forgetful. That's all it is. To be humble is to be self-forgetful. To be humble is to think of self less and occupy our thoughts with the Lord Jesus and with others. Secondly, the cause of this humility. We know it's as we're born again and as we're brought to Calvary's cross and we're made one with the Lord Jesus Christ. But what in particular does Christ use to cultivate this humility? The answer is God. That as we increase in our knowledge of God, we increase in our knowledge of self. And the result is humility. And so we grow in our understanding of God's natural excellence. When we speak of God's natural excellence, what we mean is his greatness. And the more we behold his greatness, the more we see our smallness, our littleness. The stars vanish When the sun appears, the more we gaze upon God's natural excellence, the more aware we are of what we are in his sight. We are weak in comparison to his power. We are foolish in comparison to his wisdom. We are ignorant in comparison to his knowledge. We are absolutely dependent in comparison to his sovereignty. But not only do we grow in our knowledge, our understanding of his natural excellence, we grow in our understanding and appreciation of his moral excellence. Here we're not speaking so much of his greatness as his holiness. His greatness cultivates in us an appreciation of our smallness. His holiness cultivates in us an appreciation of our sinfulness. And the more we grow in our understanding of his holiness the more we stand aghast at our own sinfulness and we echo the cry of the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. 
The third concluding remark I want to make is this. It brings us back to verses 33 through 32. The increase of humility. In particular, verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. If we want to mortify pride, if we want to put to death self-love, if we want to grow and increase in humility, we will only ever do so at the foot of the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones penned decades ago, there is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. To think that the eternal Son of God died for me. To think that the eternal Son of God became sin for me. To think that the eternal Son of God bore the curse for me. To think that the eternal Son of God suffered for me. Again, hear the words of Lloyd-Jones. There is only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust. And that is to look at the Son of God and especially contemplate the cross. And that's where we're going to end this morning. That's where we're going to conclude. And we're going to sing together a wonderful song. And to that end, the worship team is going to come up now as I just recite a couple of uh, stanzas from that song and then conclude with a word of prayer. You can probably guess which song I'm referring to. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Isaac Watts goes on, Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Our Heavenly Father, that is our prayer this morning. We do ask that by the power of the cross and the power of your resurrected Son, that you would cause us to put to death sin in our own lives, and in particular this ever-besetting sin of pride and self-love. We pray that daily you would bring us to the cross and with freshness cause us to see the love of the Lord Jesus, cause us to behold his suffering and what caused that suffering. And may we grow smaller in our own eyes as Christ grows greater. This is our prayer. And we ask that you hear it in his most precious and worthy name. Amen.